0: But I think in the past, because of the pace of practice, you know, there was the, lead, the leadership was sort of 90% management, you know, and 10% kind of leadership. Moving forward in the future, that that flips. It doesn't do away with management. It just becomes more difficult, more complex. But the the nature of leadership becomes much more important because you need to the future leaders of teams need to be really, really flexible. You know, they need to be able to tune their team constantly through the creation process and the delivery process.
1: Today we continue our conversation with Jonathan Cowell, Principal Rothy Lohman and host Ben Lawney, Senior Associate PTID. Passionate about design and specialising in technologies that enable complex geometries and 3D modelling, Jonathan has been with the practice for over five years, combining this with his longtime studio leader role at RMIT. We'd like to thank our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures, and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organizations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralizes your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. Over to you, Ben and Jonathan.
2: I'm interested in the idea that often the the costs built in are political. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit more about, about some of those challenges in projects?
0: From my perspective, the biggest cost to speculative commercial work is risk. And as you say, that's a lot of that risk is political. You know, if there was more certainty in the planning process and so on, some of that risk diminishes. There's also risk on the building side, so the delivery of materials, you know, types of construction and so on. And our process and our philosophy, and one of the things that I've, I'm really working hard within the business to bring to our design table, is the ability for us to tackle those two things in parallel at the same yeah. time. So... From a from the political side, we're we're working really hard on it, on um, our communication strategies through planning and, and engagement with the city to yeah. de-risk projects. And I um, mean, if you look at what Rothy Loman now produces from a town planning submission and the way in, the positive way with which we engage, engage with local planners, I think we've got really strong tools there that allow the decision makers to yeah. to make informed choice. And my experience has been that which is obvious, I guess, but no one really talks about it this way, is that everyone's trying to do the right thing. Everyone's got their responsibilities and sees themselves as custodians of their place. Mm. I think that the architect has a unique role and an opportunity in that space to be the communicator, the entity that actually helps all these different interest groups see how they can, first of all, engage more, more carefully within the market, maybe, but also how they can get the outcomes that they're really desiring. So instead of a solution being based on marketing, you know, like a like yep. an architect saying this is generous or this is good and this is why specifically tailor a response to those issues so that they can make their own informed choice. And my experience is that when you give people the right information, they make the right choice. So I think and so it's incumbent on I think architectural practices to focus on that as carefully as possible, and a lot of them do a very good job of it. But each practice does it slightly differently. And I guess with the other side of risk is that part of one of our philosophies is, you know, we are makers. So mm. the idea of understanding how you build materials and understanding supply chains, all sorts of things, as part of our design process uh, is really, really important. So, again, within the working ugly process, we've found ways of uh, allowing all of our technical expertise to be brought together really, really early so that we can start to de-risk strategies on our clients. So we often do, uh, you know, we, we're actually getting, sorry, more and more interesting built results. Yeah, okay. You know, we're doing an office building in Moray Street at the moment uh, for the D group where, the, where it's the facade is in situ concrete, you know, with really complex geometries and so on and it's currently running ahead of time and under budget and it's a really beautiful finish. But yeah. that's because we were able to engage, I guess, from the very beginning Only. in the concept phase with the builder and suppliers and, and detail and you know design the building accordingly to get the best best outcome
2: which kind of i think is a nice segue into one of the other principles in the manifesto which is a, a generous eye for life mm. which i think uh, aligned to what you were talking about earlier about trying to use the the realities of commercial speculative building mm. but still with an eye to what does the city need mm. is that kind of the the spirit of that and can you talk a little bit more about what does that mean practically in a live project environment sure
0: I mean, having a—I mean—the generous life for life is a really important, uh, one of our really important principles, and, and as you say, it's a guiding philosophy for a lot of decisions that we make. Uh, by prioritising things in a really positive way and looking for the positive as a philosophy as well, it allows you to engage with all sorts of stakeholders differently, but also, you know, at a different level. So it's not just about design. You know, for example, you know, we work with developers, a lot of developers. Yep. And if you look at the work that they do from a generous perspective, you start to see what how, what they're trying to achieve and what their ambitions are and how they're trying to make the city a better place. So you, it's, a, it's a way of, it's a guide to our staff that no matter who you're engaging with, whether it's, whether it's the town planner, mm-hmm. whether it's the builder, whether it's the client, if you engage with those people from a generous perspective, you'll start to see the positive things that they're trying to achieve and then you can help enhance mm-hmm. those things. At the same time, when it comes specific to architecture and design, uh, it means that every single opportunity should be focused around creating places for people, which seems obvious, but it's not always what happens in in practice. And if you you keep that focus, you can find that there are so many really easy and humble ways to ratchet up the quality of a place within very, very strict and stringent guidelines and still make it habitable and so on. So I'm
2: interested then in in how you guys are utilizing technology mm-hmm. to help you deliver
0: on that. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I guess as as we all know everyone's evolving, you know, BIM technologies, uh new rendering technologies, yeah. uh parametric technologies and so on. So our practice is engaged with all the the latest tools, but probably to talk about what what's the purpose, you know, and I think that Rothy Lohman as a practice, for example, converted to Revit really early. You know, They, they just flipped into it, cetera oh, we're 100% involved, they engaged with it, they're very innovative in that uh, software package um, for a large-scale practice really quite early and it's been very useful. But as we've built new tools and as new tools have come to the market, what we're really working towards is being able to practice at the speed of thought. So Rothy Lohman, I think we're about 160 people at the moment. We're, we're able to... Design, obviously, deliver design services, but we're also able to document and deliver our buildings on site within our own uh, studio. So we don't have to, you know, outsource documentation necessarily to, you know, overseas markets and other things. Mm -hmm. We're able to, you know, create jobs and keep it all in-house so that we can ensure a certain level of quality. But the key to that is efficiency. So what we've been trying to do over, I guess, for a long period of time, but we're working directly with now is using all these software packages to integrate our creative process and our delivery process so that it does operate at basically the speed of thought so there's no lag between an idea and implementing it and you know there's lots of uh, exciting tools that we all know that, are, so for example Enscape mm-hmm. you know as a visualisation tool allows teams that are working in Rhino SketchUp, Revit to visualise their tools uh, as they go without that time lag of producing renders like it used to be in the past and so on and then also that need for a sort of technical expertise is disappearing. And so as the speed of these software packages uh, evolve, we're able to use them in new ways. Now we can, we can actually analyse and we use, say, for example, Grasshopper and Rhino. We might um, look at the structural performance of a tower uh, mm-hmm. and, and look at different locations for columns uh, in relation to a feasibility plan. We might want to run you know, dozens of options in four hours, for example, at the same time we might try different design strategies for lobbies that are all, you know, this is all happening at the speed of thought at the same time. We're able to study options, you know, 24, 30 options. You know, we've got teams who uh, work creatively in sort of four-hour parcels of time, you know, where they have really specific things that they're trying to address. Mm It could be the environmental performance of a facade, and they'll brainstorm new ideas, feed that information back into the team. And it makes, the I think, the process of creativity really, really exciting. So what we... By making it as intense as possible, what happens is at the beginning I guess of a project the back end we actually get to have the time to then you know make the make them as uh, the projects fulfill that promise as carefully as possible you know so we want to expose all risk early we use these tools to do that we we use them to solve whatever problem we need to solve and to provide tactical answers to to different people.
2: and I think structurally we were talking before the interview started actually about the idea that that being a flatter structure for better staff engagement, mm. but more importantly, quicker results. Can you just talk a little bit about how you've gone about setting that up?
0: That's a, It is a really interesting topic. I mean, everyone talks about wanting the flat structure. Everyone talks about collaboration. So everyone knows that that's necessary, um, but it is a really difficult thing to achieve, in particular when there's a bias, I think, in architectural practice towards the I guess the genius model—the you know, idea that there is a the pyramidal structure of knowledge and so on—but you know, if you look around the world, you look at the, very, the most successful practices. They've found different ways of achieving that. Let's call it that flat, flatter yeah. structure. And as, as I mentioned before, working ugly is the sort of the philosophy that describes it. But how, does, how that works in practice is that what we're able to do. And again, probably mentioned this about Rothley Loman, Rothley Lehman has a. a basically a professional HR department as well that's very sophisticated. You know, mm-hmm. it's not run by architects, so they're professionals, uh, which is useful. It is. And so we really care about people and individuals and understand individual talents and try and find ways to create individual agency. So what that means in terms of a flat structure is we understand that, you know, you've still got to have a, a control, you've still got to sort of guide a project through a strategy to a particular outcome. But but, what you really want to be able to do is utilize all the wonderful people you have working for you to their maximum uh, ability. Something really simple just happened the other day. We had a, a really a young designer working on a hotel and uh, we wanted to shore up the pricing of all these elements within the interior of this hotel room. Now, the traditional way of going about it you know so sort of ring suppliers you know yep. through you know normal means you might have you might make ten phone calls to get a price the best price for that sink or the best price for the paint or whatever whatever it is. And whilst everyone has this knowledge, to be really specific, it still takes time to get. But if you trust, you know, I've got this idea of youth over experience. If you trust the new ways of people connecting and working. So this young designer, instead of making all those phone calls, networked uh, mm-hmm. through the industry, found somebody who is actually supplying all these same materials as a middleman to all the major hotel in hotels in Melbourne currently, yeah, okay. was able to meet that person the, the next morning for breakfast and have an answer to all those questions, you know, and we're able to optimise price and cost and then give that to the client within essentially like a, a four hour lag. Right? Yep. So that's sort of working at the speed of thought, trusting allowing individuals to take agency to do different things. It could be a technical thing. Someone we said we said to someone, Well, we're working on a new facade, you just go and meet with the precasters directly, just go there. Yep. Hang out with them for the day. You know, do the workshop live. Don't, don't wait for a formal process. Don't wait for permission, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like find the answer, go and get it. Um, and then feed that back into the team. And because, you know, people's intelligence and creativity is being brought to the table and utilized, I think people feel comfortable also being more objective about it. You know, so then people feel that they can be part of a team. They don't mm-hmm. have to be the primary author because they, they see how they're contributing to the, the final outcome. So in other words, you know, you allow the team to take the field. Yep. You know, they'll, they'll stick together as a team. You know what I mean? So rather than forcing people to, inverted commas, collaborate, just create a situation where all that effort is valued, I guess, if you know what I mean.
2: Yeah. And I think there's a really strong connection in the sort of, in the HR world between agency mm-hmm. and engagement. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you've seen? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, and I think in really easy terms, I think um, it's it's easy to imagine architectural practice. I mean, the practices that are of our scale, um, there's a lot of effort in production, you yeah. know, just to, just to get the work out the door. Um, and that can, can create a situation where there's lots of repetitive work, for example, which reduces engagement and agency and so on. So one of the things we've worked really hard with our HR department is, is work on turning that around and turning that on its head mm-hmm. and uh, by tailoring every team you know so that the unique strengths are actually brought to bear we, you know we we find ways of bringing people's engagement and making it yeah I guess part of the overall project narrative which is it's not it's not just a like a broader philosophy about there's a better way in terms of but it's it's the in my view it's the only way of um, recreating that time that we've lost in this new yeah. productivity yeah you know, stretch and so on uh, of time. I think the first, I mean, when I started practicing on the drafting board, you know, 250 hours to do a AO sheet by yeah. hand, that's, I don't know what it is now, but it's definitely not that. 28, 28 minutes. 28 minutes yeah. at, at best, maybe.
2: And I think that's really interesting. I think a lot of practices are, are using that, whether it's formally or it's just kind of happening, perhaps mm. because of time. Mm. But it, it feels like to play devil's advocate, the the inverse is that that embodies more risk. Yeah. The more decision makers you have, the more chance there is that somebody's going to go off on a tangent that true. doesn't align. Doesn't true? It's how do you, true. How do you how do you manage that?
0: Yeah, how do you manage team discipline? So, I, I guess for me personally, I've, I've learned a lot from teaching. So, I think I can't remember how long I've been teaching for now, but it's nearly twenty years. Yep when you started when I started teaching there was a lot of cliches you're told by other tutors about what the, the what you should expect from a class and and the class performance and so on and and talent pools etc yeah. but what I've learned over my time teaching is that a lot of that isn't true it's all just a myth and that it's 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 taught me to have faith in people mm-hmm. so the biggest thing I found as a tutor which which then applies to practice in terms of getting people to perform really really well you know do their own being able to contribute their own thing but but actually contribute to a larger whole it, it all comes down to the philosophy and structure of that studio itself, in other words, as a teacher student performance tracked my performance you know really closely you know so when i when I was um, better organized when i was when I had the strategies in place they they flourished, and I was able to See how you know different types of personalities would flourish under different conditions, and and I've worked really hard as a tutor over time to set up a situation where where basically everyone can do their their best, so so allow for that pluralism. Yeah. So you, you, so in practice, you're right. You can't you can't be chaotic. It's not about um, a committee. It's the opposite of that. Yes. But what so what we do is we 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 treat we treat it a lot more strategically. So it's a we set up say for example like there 's like thirty eight targets on a project that we need to tick off the list problems mm-hmm. to solve or things yeah. to investigate, so the team's able to hit those targets so rather than everyone trying to push for the same target or you know push for control over aesthetics or composition, yeah. we make it a lot more specific and we let we give people choice in terms of how they 're going to uh, engage with those targets so we have our you know we have our kickoff workshop sessions, which we bring whatever experience is required nationally. So we can build, sometimes we build a national team for two weeks just to start a project. Once the project begins and has its project agenda, yeah, there's just strategic targets on the board that are open for creativity and exploration. And essentially anyone on the team, you just have to cross them off, mm-hmm. gets to engage with those things. And because uh, you know that aspect of the situation is really, really clear in an ideal sense... And there's also an overarching kind of philosophy about what yeah. the project needs to be about that's beyond its aesthetics. There's uh, basically a natural team discipline, do you know what I mean, that people yeah. start to see that, you know, why it's valuable to spend their time in this particular manner and they support it, you know. So I think it's – again, it's that goes back to that early conversation about sort of subjectivity, I suppose, you know, that the more objective and professional you can be and the more professional your agenda is yeah. – the easier it is for the team to say, okay, I agree, I can understand that agenda and support it. I'm not trying to interpret, you know, something that's really hard to explain or ascertain. I can see what it is and use my professional skills to deliver it, which I think is really important. And does that, I guess,
2: it feels to me that that implies that you've, because there isn't a pyramid structure, it puts a series of people in your office in what is essentially more a, a managing people rather than, Guiding an architectural outcome.
0: Yeah, I guess it's a good question too. I think one of the things about our practice, I guess, is that in the end, everyone's on the tools. So all the principles are on the tools. I'm still on the tools. So, but you're right about when it comes to managing people, it's the it's probably the most valuable creative skill in the studio. You know, it's, it's kind of building the right teams, building the right matrix, and tuning it. So we have a series of things in place that allow us to to sort of, I guess, oversee what's happening. So we have, like any studio, I suppose, we have regular design reviews on the Mm -hmm. floor and so Mm -hmm. on. We have weekly national design reviews where all the principals meet discussing their projects and they're tracked all the time. We have resourcing meetings every week as well, but they're Mm -hmm. all updated. The sort of analysis is updated live as well. Um, so we're always talking about, you know, how to best deploy teams and tweak them and tune them and, you know, not yep. let them hit a roadblock and, and so on. So a lot of it does come down to, to people management. But I think, yeah, underpinning that is uh, that our leaders are all able to sol- sort of solve these problems. So they're able to essentially make space and, you know, create yep. those opportunities and strategies for the team to follow. So, yeah, it's a bit of both. And
2: I guess that's a, an interesting segue into what are the, what are the skills – the next generation of architectural leaders are
0: going to require. If you, if you compare the past to the future, there, there was always the place for the, you know, the classic leader, you know, the, the genius and so on. But I think in the past, because of the pace of practice, you know, there was the, lead, the leadership was sort of 90% management, you yep. know, and 10% kind of leadership. I guess moving forward in the future, that that flips. It doesn't do away with management. It just becomes more difficult, more complex, but the the nature of leadership becomes much more important because you need to the future leaders of teams need to be really really flexible. You know they need to be able to tune tune their team constantly mm-hmm. through the creation process and the delivery process. So they need to be really good communicators. They really need to they need to understand people. Need to have empathy. They need to have strong, I think, shared ethics and philosophies to make mm-hmm. sure that they're making similar decisions as other teams so that there's yeah. cohesion. But they also need to be you know, generous and humble. You know, because I guess that's the. It goes. It's goes quite a complex set of things, but uh, but maybe you could compare it to Paul Ruse taking over the Sydney Swans and <laughs> you know, going from the glamour uh, the glamour team to uh, back to the Bloods. This idea of sort of team discipline yeah. and the philosophy of looking after the person next to you. So I think the leaders the, the leaders need to care about peoples and their progress. You know, and one of the things we talk about on the floor is. That someone's—it seems idealistic, but it's really to do with day-to-day practice—that that, uh, an individual's career will will increase in direct proportion to their willingness to help the person next to them. So rather than it being a competitive place of trying yep. to show that you're perfect or that you can do it quicker, it's actually not letting anyone fail because we're a, we're a business that need or a practice and an architecture studio that needs to deliver cons- consistent quality work, um, and we need a diverse group of people to do that. So. You know, we need to look after each other.
2: I'm interested, perhaps, as a as a counterpoint to that, in terms of disruption. Mm-hmm. We're seeing more and more technology and practices, AI, robotics. How do you see some of those things disrupting the practice in the next, let's say, ten years?
0: Yeah, this Well, I, I see a lot of. We see a lot of disruption already, and they're all all these things are related. I think you know AI, you know, competition, computational design, you know, new new ways of fabricating. De-risking documentation, the politics of things. If you look at it in a macro sense, so for example, the early contractor involvement. You know, where yep. clients are now going, or developers are going straight to a builder before they've even designed a, potentially before they've even got a bought the site to um, speculate with that builder about how should they go about it. You know, what should they be expecting to spend for a comparable project, and then which architecture we go with, and so on. That disruption disruption's taking place in part because, you know, a lot of the tier one builders are now purchasing up supply chains. You know, they they manage fabrication of yeah. elements through subsidiaries and other ways. Right? So there's sort of – so the tier ones are looking about de-risking their delivery process and optimizing that. Even something as simple as a builder getting, getting money from the bank, you know, it used to be that you'd have to wait until something was delivered to site. You know, yep. to for to, for the bank to give you money for the builder. So there might be a six week lag between something being fabricated, made, delivered, Installed. the builder getting the cash. But now, because of new technologies, a builder something can be fabricated in overseas in China. It's tagged as soon as it's tagged, and it's it's moving, travelling. Uh, the bank can release the money because they know it exists. It's you know, it's on its way. It's mm. so on and so forth. So there's a sort of this really amazing optimization of time at that macro end. And the, the real question is how do architects start to, to engage with that as a practice? How do you deal with the fact that you might not be the first person that's brought you know, by the client to a, to a project? So I think what, what, what practice what architects need to do is also you know, reinvent their pr- professional services accordingly you know, and be able to display innovation strategy and all these other kind of think uh, sort of creative insights to developers to make sure that they're engaged even before There is a site. So, strategic advisors or, um, you know, in a kind of political sense, people who, if you can demonstrate that you actually understand a city carefully and, you know, understand the right way of deploying elements, for example, we're doing some projects in um, Cremorne at the moment to office buildings. And we've worked really, really hard, you know, through our own analysis and so on of the urban design issues addressing that part of the city some of our ideas you know are, are foreshadowing future structural mm-hmm. plans that are actually going to be implemented to that part of town so our, our work is already kind of anticipating these changes yep. you know and being able to demonstrate that knowledge and that insight to clients is essential i think to continuing that engagement you know moving forward as a practice you know it's not just uh the ball received you know you turn yep. around kick kick it into a goal now like you've actually you got to get the hard ball gets so you've got to think of a new way of um Oh, you know, opening up business, I guess, and practice and opportunity. And does that change
2: the service offering?
0: It does. It makes it more diverse and rich, in my view. You know, and as I said, I, since I've joined Rothy Loman, I have never been disappointed, but uh, I've been, you know, really uh, impressed with all the stakeholders involved in the projects, you know, whether it's town planners, cities, yep. clients and so on. If If we're engaging... And giving them their information, as we talked about before, they make they make really good strategic decisions. And I find it really easy to negotiate those those outcome outcomes in a really positive way. So I don't see um, as long as, you know, we're producing the right tools or bring the right tools to the right meetings and so on, it's really easy, I think, to see how we can get really positive outcomes continuously. You know, so that we can be very progressive, we can improve the standards of things and so on on in our cities in a really meaningful way and are those
2: tools changing are you, are you now arriving to planners and putting a headset on them and walking them through the building and saying look at this wonderful urban context
0: we are basically the way i look at it is anything we can do we do all the time every day every minute so and we don't hesitate so if it's uh if the right thing is to um to use virtual reality, which we've used for a lot of projects as well with clients, we'll do that. But what we do is we tailor each – we try and tailor, I suppose, each experience and each offering to the to the opportunity and the issue, which actually also makes it more fun, to be yeah. honest. So it's not – we don't have one model that fits all. So each client, yeah, gets a different experience. Some Some of our clients and stakeholders love, for example, being involved in the workshops and seeing the creative process. So mm-hmm. we invite them in. Yep. Let them watch and and be part of it. Some don't. Some need to, you know want to understand the macroeconomic patterns that they're engaged with. So we expose them to our other principles nationally. We you know we we are able to demonstrate and show how things are evolving in different cities at different times, and so they can see a, a broader strategy. And I think you know all sorts of things are changing. You know, like the build to rent market, all these other things that are coming yep. uh, to the cities and require different ways of engaging, I guess, I guess as well. So yeah, all tools we use everything. We still use the pen though. So, you know, VR and- And the pen. And the pen.
2: And obviously you're now being engaged, you're offering a broader set of services, you're being engaged by a broader group of people. It might be the developer, the client, various forms of innovation, you know, design it to this stage, but not that stage. Mm. How are you assessing all of these things from a from a business risk point of view? And do you think some of these things are applying undue risk to architectural practices?
0: yeah that's a good point it's a It is a really difficult one so we you're right I mean I think you know ensuring that for example something really simple like how how long is our engagement with the client and the uncertainty around it you're right that that's a that's a a constant business risk um, because there's not always a lot of certainty mm. for each for certain size projects, especially as projects become larger and more complex uh, and therefore more valuable to the practice, Um, you know, it'll employ more people for longer and so on, they are also the ones that tend to be the highest risk in regards to, um, you know, ongoing engagement. The way in which we tackle it, I guess, is at the moment we're able to offer the full service to anyone, you know, and I think that that's really rare. So we can, Mm -hmm. within the studio, our efficiencies are so high where we're competitive uh, that aspect so that makes us, I think, valuable and desirable. But also, again, one of the things that we're we're trying really hard to do is display a deeper value to our clients early in the project so they can see the benefits of maintaining us throughout you know, uh, as an ongoing engagement. I mean, when it comes to something specific like Nova- Novation, I mean, Novation's been around for a long time. The irony of the Novation contract was that it was established initially to... Uh, so innovation and design and construct contracts was originally established in the industry to improve quality, so it was the, the theory behind it was if you got the architect and the builder together early enough, they could come to some consensus about the better way of doing something so that you so it should should improve design standards, but that's not sort of what became evident as the market developed you know in fact, it became the opposite way. you know it was about value management, everything was about profit yeah. grinding down but again, so one of the things that we try and do is by deploying our Team more deeply, in, so we you know we're engaging with our clients on multiple levels and multiple times, and mm-hmm. sometimes, as you say, on innovation. That's a builder to offer up our value, to demonstrate our value in different ways, depending on the the task. And we're able to use innovation and DNC again to 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 do what it was meant for. I think to to innovate in materials and detailing yeah. and so on. But again, it only works from a, from the point of view of a discipline. I think. Like there are there are a lot of really amazing practices in Australia that do wonderful work, you know. We know that, and uh, but the model, I think, is is sort of still, uh, you know, it's 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 sort of a what should I say? It's a you know, it's about the a specific set of separate design criteria and quality criteria that then the builder and the client get to choose from, and they say, "Well, oh, I want that, I'll yeah. pay for it." Whereas I think. Moving forward, we we have to get past that, and we have to just we have to tailor what we're doing to sort of to make that issue more apparent. So 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 it's not an option, you know. Yes. What I mean? So that it's so things are tied together. And again, this is something I've learned through my career. You know, even back when you you know, build a boat for the first time, it's about how you tie things together. You know, so that you can, you can get a quality outcome because or, rather than an issue just being aesthetic or about final finish it's integrated into dozens and dozens of other decisions and then it therefore becomes difficult to remove but also because if you can understand the project holistically you can manage risk and cost in a way that's much deeper that taking a couple hundred dollars a square meter off a facade finish doesn't make much of a saving but if you can optimize the structural performance of the building you know you're saving, saving millions and millions of dollars and uh, i think th- that for us as a practice, we're moving into to that space. You know, even at a, was working on a building in Sydney where it's a four-storey project. And depending on the way in which you looked at the structure, you could save $1.5 million out of the project. Whereas looking at the facade finish in a value management process, yeah. save 90000 So, you know, using our design skills much you know, in a much more deeper way allows us to kind of influence the outcome of projects to make them happen. And mm. I think that that's part of the service that rothie Lohman provides and that's part of how we'll de-risk i think that issue of the the long-term engagement by being able to demonstrate through creative innovation i guess we can we can find better ways of doing things solve all sorts of problems
1: we hope you enjoyed today's episode join us next week when we wrap up the conversation between jonathan and ben the Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review, Madeleine Swain, editor of Architectural Review, and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, and also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.